one. All right, we're up, guys. So welcome, everyone. Uh, today we have Micah Engel and Alex Aronson joining us. Uh, we have interviewed each of them individually in the past, and uh, we've talked about some very interesting topics with each one. Today, we're hoping to have a more general conversation about um, essentially the guiding theme is something like, what might it look like being able to see people more fully, uh, appreciate their humanity, their experience in its, in its fullness and depth? Um, and how might that look in all sorts of different contexts, such as the psychiatric context, the psychological one, maybe the political one and the economic one. Um, so today what we'll see is an is a intersection um, in a ma manner of speaking of uh, Micah's and Alex's and all of our interests coming together, right? Um, just a brief little recap, uh, Micah's interests are in um, individualism and uh, critical psychology. Uh, he's also done some counseling work in group therapy. I think your dissertation project is on that topic, actually. Maybe you can weave that in at some point today. And uh, with Alex, um, his, uh, so Alex is a practicing counselor, right? Um, and you incorporate a lot of Lacanian psychoanalysis in your work. Um, I, I do try to, yes. And the four of us, um, myself, Micah, Alex, and, and, and Surich, uh, we've all been to or are currently at West Georgia. So um, we have a lot in common uh, in terms of our backgrounds. And of course, Gil is also a kindred spirit. That's why, you know, he's one of the hosts of this podcast. So um, why don't I uh, send the mic over to one of you guys, Micah or Alex, um, to just get us started on, um, on whatever thoughts you have about this guiding theme of how can it, how can we see people more fully? How can we appreciate their humanity? If you want to link it to, let's say, anti-psychiatry or anything like that, um, to begin with, that'd be helpful. Well, I'm, I'm able to, to take a crack at it. Um, though, Micah, I feel like probably you have a lot more technical knowledge about anti-psychiatry than I do. My first brush with anti-psychiatry or what you might call psychiatry critical uh, discourse and, and literature was during my undergraduate at Duquesne University where the focus is on humanistic, existential, uh, phenomenological, and psychoanalytic perspectives, none of which can really be said to, you know, to be uh, easily integrated into the sort of psychiatric worldview or psychiatric conceptualization of the person. Um, I had the experience of sort of going from this, this very nice, um, very kind of this sort of holding environment uh, to uh, really its opposite. The first job that I had after my undergraduate was in a psychiatric hospital where I worked for about two years. And I will say that I saw there virtually none of the principles that I had, you know, that I had been taught and that I had come to value. And I spent, you know, at that point, quite a bit of time sort of trying to integrate into my own life and my way of approaching other people. Uh, you know, in a way, it was all the lesson that I needed. It was, it was everything that I ever could have needed to know about the, the deficits, um, really, without which the psychiatric model cannot operate. Um, I feel like that's a mouthful. I'm happy to sort of pass that, pass that idea around and see if that sort of resonates with anybody. There's plenty more to say, of course, but 
Yeah, Alex, I'm curious if you could be a little more specific with what specifically did, were you seeing there that uh, you know got your heckles up? Well, um, the you know the sort of synecdoche to me of the whole thing is that our clients uh, were called consumers, and so you may be a catatonic schizophrenic, but you are still a consumer of psychiatric services. Um, and you know, obviously, that's just a little sort of morbid—something uh, morbidly humorous in that. But um, working with the primarily schizophrenic population, um, I saw really that there was the, the some of the most dehumanized people that I'd ever sort of come into contact with. I mean, these are really socially disenfranchised, often homeless, often without any contact with their families. We pretty much were—we were like a holding location where various psychiatric drugs were administered and they would see, you know, um, sort of bottom rung clinicians, which is not to say anything against anyone who only has a master's. I only have one myself, but this was like a place where you would go and kind of observe classes would be brought in. Psychiatrists would teach using these people. And for the other 23 hours of the day, they were just, it was bedlam. They were just living in this space that was pretty much only existed to contain and control them very difficult to do any good work there. Yeah, well, I mean, that that certainly gets into some anti-psychiatry in the, in the um, conventional sense. I'm not exactly sure where to start with this, but that certainly gets into anti-psychiatry in the kind of R.D. Lang, uh, et cetera, sense that also gets into some, you know, stuff from Michel Foucault, uh, as you're talking about, you know, how psychiatry and psychology essentially exist to contain sort of the leftovers, the remnants, the, the ones who are not capable of uh, productive work, the ones who are not capable, you know, maybe nowadays, especially the ones who are not capable of fulfilling a kind of like subjective demand of being like, a normal person who acts certain ways and, and whatnot. I, um, I'm just thinking like, no, oh, this is this is too this is too speculative. Never mind. Um, but you also have, you know, I brought this up in part because I know, Micah, that you have uh, your own experience with um, working in a, a place that has sort of sounded similar. Yeah, yeah, and I, I talked about that uh, last time on the podcast. Um, but I, I would say that you know there's a there's a couple of differences between <laughs> my experience and your experience. One being that like when I was working at a place like this, I didn't I hadn't read anything really. Like I didn't know anything. I I, I had an intuitive and a kind of um, emotional sense that something was kind of off here, but I didn't I couldn't formulate it and I didn't uh you know so you had kind of the 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 breadth of knowledge that you'd gained from both Duquesne University in Pittsburgh and West Georgia uh and then the other kind of significant difference I think is that um I uh I, I was a tech and I worked there for you know uh, a short period of time so I, I did see some as you you know same thing you're talking about some really dehumanized in my mind, people. Um, but I think I think you definitely got more of like a full spectrum picture of what it looks like to work in a, a psychiatric setting that's 
you know, got all these problems. Mm-hmm. I got kind of a, a little snapshot, I think. Sure. So I think my my knowledge around this, I have that little snapshot, but then I think a lot of my knowledge here is more on the theoretical side, more of the, you know, coming in from the anti-psychiatric literature and whatnot. So I mean, that might be good. Like you, maybe you can you can paint sort of the lived picture and, and I can paint some of the theoretical and then we can go back and forth if you want. Sure, absolutely. I'm wondering. I'm wondering where the in feels like. Uh, is is there sort of an in for for other people in this conversation too, or because there's more that I could I could say about my experience there, um, but we may be sort of entering, you know, into into the weeds a little bit. Yeah, if I may, just uh, add some framing to the uh, conversation and maybe um, lead it actually in a certain direction that I'm curious about because there's an important ethical question that comes up here that I think it came up for both of you as a type of experience when you were confronted with a certain kind of population with, that was undergoing certain forms of suffering um, and you encountered it or confronted it from a position of maybe powerlessness even, right? So seeing something unfold that you felt that you could do nothing about because there weren't really any options that were available to you. And maybe even more than that, at least in the um, situation that Alex just told us about, excuse me, that you have master's level counselors who are being taught by psychiatrists on, and this is for sure an oversimplification, maybe even doesn't do justice to their experience of the situation either, because there's that element of it too, you know, Um, right? Being taught on how to, as you put it, control and contain the experience, maybe because they're might not be anything that that um, any possible solution that's available that that that's an obvious way of dealing with it and, and and resolving the problem and helping to alleviate the suffering itself, which sort of brings us back to the first two um, right uh, um, maxims of the uh, Hippocratic Oath: first, do no harm; second, do good. So, from what I'm hearing in both your cases, you were in this, right, situation where you felt a strong need to do some good and you you saw a deficit of the do good part of that ethical um, um, situation unfolding, right? Um, And at the same time, I'm wondering if um, the reason why the do good aspect isn't really brought to full realization in these kinds of situations is because there's a lot of risks involved and there's not a lot of knowledge and understanding in place to even guide a proper therapeutic process of, of unfolding, which then brings me back to, or bring us, brings us all back to our uh, original backgrounds and interests in humanistic existential phenomenological psychoanalytic approaches to human experience. And the lack of that kind of education taking place in the mainstream, right? So maybe there's a critique to be made here um, on pedagogical grounds, right? That fundamentally, there's a certain kind of mass indoctrination happening, um, a kind of dogmatism, a, a mass scale dogmatism that, right, biases our vision and, and we get into tunnel vision of sorts. Um, viewing human experience and human beings from the lens of objectivistic, positivistic, natural science. 
So we end up missing what's really there, what's really part of that, right? Of the experience that's unfolding. Um, I don't know where you want to go from there, there, but that's sort of what I was hearing and everything you guys were saying, as I understood it. Actually, I, I want to, I'd like to leap off that a little bit, Gary. Um, it, it's interesting to me because not only do we four share the humanistic educational background, um, we all have some foot in healthcare too. So you, Micah, and Alex all have experience in psychotherapy. Um, my only experience in healthcare was actually from the corporate side, but I did work in a clinic as well. Um, and I worked with a lot of psychologists working with schizophrenics and 5150s, people uh, dangerous themselves and others. Um, and and, and from, the, from the business side, a big part of it was, it, it seemed to me that there really wasn't any room for a humanistic approach because from the kind of like cost-saving perspective, the dogma would be um, get the patients out as soon as possible because then that means we don't have to pay for their staying there anymore. Um, but the thing that I think is at odds with humanistic psychology is that... Um, there's more of an emphasis in our field on kind of finding a clearing or an opening up for a patient to actually um, come upon some deep, meaningful insight that will actually help them transform their life. Um, but I'm also reminded by, um, by someone in my, in my cohort uh, who Micah and I actually lived with uh, before you lived with us was um, her, her critique was that, you know, maybe this stuff is just too highbrow for the healthcare system as it is currently. And maybe, you know, there the venues that these patients, you know, that I think ideally we would like to see them in are, they're just not at the right level of functioning to be able to pursue things like self-actualization. Um, and so, so I, 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 at this point, I can't help but wonder like, you know, life coaching is not part of the healthcare system. That's an independent sort of endeavor that people take and uh, pay for privately. Um, I'm not aware that any healthcare um, provider says, you know, like we'll, we'll cover any claims for life coaching because that's something like, that's like a bonus in life. That's not like uh, getting you from the negative to the neutral in life. So I'm almost wondering at this point, you know, like, if we want a patient to get out of the hospital as soon as they can, because that means they're at a normal state of functioning for those patients, what next, how then can those people um, pursue or perhaps be led to the more humanistic solutions? Because there are psychiatrists like Irvin Yalom who um, are like staunch proponents of the humanistic and existential approaches and even the psychoanalytic. But then the question is like, amidst all of these barriers in the healthcare system uh, with psychiatry's tendency to prescribe drugs for psychological problems, amidst all of that, what, can, what route can we chart or help the patient chart for themselves if we're being more like a patient-focused therapy, like more Rogerian therapy? How, how, can we, um, how can we encourage that in a climate that just there's no room for discourse. There's no room to, for the patient to come onto their insight in psychiatry. It's like the opposite. It's like, we, we can't, we don't want to talk to you because everything you're saying is incoherent to a psychiatrist. Right. So it's like, 
there's so many barriers there that it's it's almost mind-boggling to me at this point for us for for people of our of our orientations and I, I'd actually love to to jump in right there. Um, I'm sure other people have some stuff, but I have I kind of have something that's just sort of you know in my mind right now. Uh, Gary, both from what you're saying and also Suraj from you, um, that the you know the fundamental assumption I think that makes it possible to continue to you know you're talking about the the prevalence of of this notion of of recovery that you become. Uh, stable enough to leave the hospital and what you do with yourself is, is up to you after that, stay on your medications. I think that one of, the, one of the things that allows this system to predominate and to continue to sort of dominate the, the episteme is that for the system in which that, that healthcare system itself is ensconced, um, the schizophrenic or psychotic subjectivity um, is, is kind of a crisis. Um, and because it's, a, because it's a crisis, because it, it is uh, quite resistant to all the means of, I would say it's, it's pretty resistant to the means of ideological interpolation that, that we kind of count on to regulate most members of society, probably ourselves included, um, because people who are differently structured are not, are not really able to cleave to that in the same way. Uh, they have to be contained. Um, because they, they are, you know, they're this kind of confounding variable. Um, and I think maybe, maybe that's, maybe that's too strong to say that they have to be contained, but they, that they are, um, they have to be, they have to be, um, they cannot be engaged with directly because if, if the, the discourse of a, of a schizophrenic person, for instance, is actually meaningful, if that can be if that can be read, interpreted, understood as meaningful, then um, I think it, it would have something to say about the, the discourse of non-schizophrenic subjects or non-psychotic subjects as well. Um, Do you have something more? Uh, no, um, no, never know. Okay. You do, but I'll talk and then you can talk to me back. Sure, sure. Um, so, this kind of is jumping off of what all three of you have said, which is good. Um, so I, I have kind of a, you know, trying to tackle this, this issue, I have kind of a, a reformist angle, which would be kind of addressing what you're talking about, Gary, in terms of pedagogy. Like, I think it would be amazing if, um, you know, all clinicians were taught, you know, a few different things. Uh, one being a, a kind of history of, psychology and psychiatry where they can get kind of a, a contextual understanding of what this field is, what this discipline is, how it functions, how it, how it came into being and why, sort of sociologically, economically. I think that would be really important. Uh, on the other side of things, I think that there are some really interesting, more humanistic, more progressive forms of practice that are coming out. Things like open dialogue, uh, which has actually shown to be insanely effective uh, for the insane, for people in psychosis, right? Insanely effective, like way more than anything that we do right now. Um, so it would be awesome if clinicians were taught things like open dialogue, which is really based in some humanistic type principles. 
um, I can, I don't really want to explain it. I can if, if people want me to, but um, so, so that's kind of, I think there's a reformist angle where education pedagogy could definitely be changed in some positive directions. Uh, and then this just gets, gets what we're talking about, gets me back to some of what we talked about when I was on the first time of like, I'm not sure that these problems can be solved at the level of culture, at the level of the mind, at the level of subjectivity, even at the level of like intersubjectivity. Like, I think that we're, we're talking, cause I mean, I completely agree with Alex that we're like psychotic subjectivity poses a crisis uh, for the type of society we live in uh, that, that has to be wrangled somehow you know, uh, and I, I think that the the socio-political and economic organization, which does not, cannot sort of uh, take in and metabolize certain types of people, like people in psychosis, I think that has to be changed in order for, for sort of genuine flourishing for a lot of these people who are not able to be, are not able to fit in and do get, you know, coercively uh, fixed or contained or whatever, uh, in order for a lot of those people to have any kind of flourishing, I, I think that more has to change than just our, our, our therapeutic methods. Although, again, I, that's the kind of more radical angle. And then I do also have this reformist angle too. Well, I'd, I'd like to jump in real quick, just, just very quickly, Micah, to kind of complete the thought that you've helped me to complete by what you're saying is that, you know, in order for us to start to hear, um, you know, the, the words of the, of the deeply, deeply mentally ill as, as other than meaningless, the same ear that would have to be honed to do that, we'll, we'll start to listen to other things too. We'll, we'll become an interpretive ear rather than one that imagines that uh, communication mm. is just the conveyance of information in a straightforward way, uh, which is what our society sort of, um, well, our society, that sounds a little pretentious, but let's say certain discourses really rely on that. The, the idea of transparency of communication rather than interpretive communication. Right, right. So That's saying, the link, yeah, right, right. You're, you're saying the, uh, the symptom might have something to say? Is that what you're saying? Basically? Yes, and, and if the symptoms of the, of the most disturbed among us have something to say, then probably the rest of our symptoms uh, will, will have something to say too, which is pretty uncomfortable. You know, yeah. if, if, if the difference between you and a, a severely mentally ill person is, is maybe a... Um, just a matter of, of your own understanding rather than biology or, or, or essence in some way, then uh, that, that's, you know, sort of decentering and, and, and difficult. That's excellent. Uh, those are excellent points. I want to say that um, I want to make two or three comments. One of them is that as you're calling psychotic subjectivity a kind of crisis, um, I'm hearing two different senses of that actually. And, or I, I think I'm detecting two different senses. So I'm practicing my hermeneutic here right now. Um, so there's on the one hand, the sense in which it's a crisis means that it indicates a kind of crisis for the individual who's undergoing or experiencing, right? Um, the, that particular form of suffering and arguably I'd be curious what you'd have to say about this. Um, arguably, the crisis that the individual is experiencing when they're going through psychosis is a crisis in their relationship with culture or the cultural. And as you know, in relatively informed Lacanians, you, you know where I would go with this, right? It's like it's the name of the father that hasn't been instilled, right? 
um, in, in the psychotic subject has been foreclosed, uh, which essentially in layperson terms, as I, as I understand it at least, is um, in some sense, the failure to establish a, a vital sort of connection to the cultural and cultural meanings as they unfold in our intersubjective relationships with others. Um, so that's one sense of crisis, right? It's a crisis in our relationship with the cultural. The second sense of crisis is that each culture, each cultural context has its own way of making sense of psychotic experiences. And the critique that I think I was hearing you make was that the way in which our culture in the West makes sense of these types of experiences is not as good as it could be. There are maybe other ways of making sense of these forms of experiences that um, could do better whatever that means, right? Um, and the third one is, the third comment is a bit less related to what you were saying, but it speaks to the kind of um, virtue that's cultivated when you start training your therapeutic ear or your hermeneutic ear, trying to listen to what things might mean beyond their obvious meaning, right? That, that sort of shines forth. And uh, what makes that particularly uncomfortable, I think, speaks to something that's maybe paramount to what it means to be a human being, which is that whenever we confront the unknown, at least within our own selves, whenever we're in a state of not knowing what's going on, uh, that's uncomfortable because we don't know what to do. And it's, it's when we confront the unknown in that way, whether it's in the psychiatric hospital or institution or in the clinic room or even in our own lives, that we might feel a strong urge to control what's going on and to contain it. So maybe the kind of virtue that needs to be cultivated is one of the Socratic virtues, right? The capacity to tolerate the unknown and to tolerate the state of not knowing and just to get curious about what's going on. And maybe that, that might be the function of being hermeneutically engaged with your experience so that you can ultimately transform your anxieties into curiosities and then articulate what's going on in a way that maybe does more justice to the experience as it is rather than how you would want it to be which might actually reduce it, so. I wanna to return to what you were saying in the first place about ethics, Gary, um, because I think that's important. When we talk about culture and we talk about ethics and we talk about, for example, the, the merging between a psychiatric culture and say the culture that the patient is from, then I think there is this inherent hierarchy already from the outset before anything has even begun, which is systemic or whatever it is, cultural or deep, even deeper than that possibly, um, of the psychiatrist is the expert. And I, what, you know, I have studied years in a formal setting and, and I have worked with patients before in a way that was uh, sanctified by the institution. And so therefore I know it's better. You know, I know what's best for you as the patient, but that being said, I come from a completely different culture than you, the patient. And so there's already the presumption of a hierarchy there uh, that I think, and if you go to ethics too, the, the psychiatrist or anyone in the medical profession has an ethic that they're uh, brought into, whether it's a Hippocratic ethic um, or the societal or the economic ethics. And I think that the way that those ethics are communicated between these two different cultures, and there's more than two, but just to be simple right now, there's at least these two. 
um, there needs to be a kind of uh, a reconciling of ethics coming from different cultures, or we need to go deeper than that, or we need to go to the question of morality, which is, I think, the humanistic question more of how do we treat a human being at the basic level? That seems to be what's important. That seems to be what everything else kind of should follow from um, in, any, in any dealing with another human being. I think that's a very, diff a, a very difficult question to answer differently than we already do from the system that we're in. Uh, you know, you can, you can certainly, um, as you know, open dialogue shows and other places, there's soteria houses, there's all like the art, the traditional Kingsley Hall from R.D. Lang, there's these sort of experiments that have been done of trying to kind of give people a, a space in which they can be treated differently, in which they can sort of more, less coercively, more organically express themselves. Uh, and there, and there's a, there's definitely a humanistic kind of impulse to a lot of that. Um, but I, I think that I think that it has to be more radical than that personally. I don't, I don't because again, if, if you're talking about cultures or I've been thinking a lot lately in terms of like psychic ecosystems, like if you put someone in a psychic ecosystem like uh, a Kingsley Hall where they're psychotic but they're given sort of freedom to, to draw and to do art and to talk to people without being just, you know, injected with drugs 24 seven. If you put people in that psychic ecosystem uh, it may help them, but they're still going to go back into this other ecosystem, which is the, the world everywhere around this room that they're in, uh, which is, you know, I think fundamentally dehumanizing and fundamentally doesn't respect humanity, doesn't, doesn't have a, a humanistic ethic. And of course, I, I, I mean capitalism, essentially. Well, right, because you are, at the end of the day, putting somebody, you're, you're inserting a human being into a different context that you presume is better for them or will be, or at least you hope it will be, yeah. which is fine. It's, we should all hope for the best for other people. Um, but, but to be the one inserting somebody into that is already presuming, I know better than you. And, uh, and frankly, as far as psychiatry is concerned, uh, the patient is more of the object. And in fact, they're the disordered object. And so I, I, for me, it's, it's very easy to sympathize with the psychiatrist in the sense of there's this disorder, there's this uncertainty. And so um, I'm just going to throw a pill at it because I don't know what else to do. It's like Gary was saying, it's like, it, it's this, it, it's, it's, it's a kind of immature knee jerk way of dealing with the uncertainty. So I understand where it comes from. I don't agree with the end result of it. Um, like in my own life, I've just, outright rejected that sort of intervention personally but um th there seems to be uh there seems to be a, a gap that maybe it's in culture but it but there needs to be some kind of change but maybe beyond these experiments which are promising but then they need to be established in some way that um retains their efficacy and their unique ability to house people, but again, maybe it needs to be more radical, like you're saying. Maybe it needs to be taken to the streets in some way, this sort yeah. of treatment or, or interaction. Yeah. I'll shut up after this, but uh, you know, the, the psychiatrist has an economic imperative 
and it may not be sort of directly impinging on them, but it's, it's ecological, you know, they're in an economic ecosystem, which requires certain things of them, just as the person with schizophrenia is in an ecosystem, which requires certain things of them, and they're not able to meet, you know. Mm -hmm. Gary, I just wanted to just to take a second to say that your facilitation of this is probably like the unsung hero of this podcast. You really heard some some great things in in what people were saying. Um, yeah, you you very well very successfully redirected some of our early uh, uh, trains off the rails. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes, and and Micah and and Suraj, as you guys were talking, I was thinking that you both were talking about. In maybe from different perspectives, um, this need to follow what is expedient, this need to follow what um, what is what feels what feels you know that it meets that sort of pressing demand to do something now, to act now, uh, and to do you know to act in a in a coherent, understandable manner towards the goal. Um, and I think whether you frame that, you, I think you can you can frame that as an economic imperative, Micah, as you have, and I think that's certainly true. Um, but then I also, you know, as, as someone who has, who is not, you know, I, I can say that I did not always do very good work while I was there myself. I was not very well armed, I wouldn't say, when I went in. Um, and I certainly tried my best with some of the people that I met there. But uh, it's also, it's extremely taxing and challenging uh, at times to be the one who is not only poised to try to make sense of, of a, of, of a, on the surface a very confused and nonsensical discourse, but also to be the one who allows yourself to um, sort of to follow your own inclinations with it too and to, and to try, you know, at, at that point in my life, that sort of therapeutic ear was, was, I just was not developed. I mean, maybe it started to develop there. Um, but to even allow yourself to follow your own associations what a client is saying is you try to imaginatively sort of catch up to them that's a that's a difficult kind of work too and i think that it, maybe it's something about being you know the sorts of beings that we are that that can make that difficult and not just our our economic situatedness even though that's part of it um i have found work with you know schizophrenic people and psychotic subjects are not always the same thing psychoanalysis doesn't solve the dsm but let's say, you know, profoundly, um, you might say profoundly sort of epistemologically other um, people, uh, that can be really rending and, and difficult work for the person too, who is, who is having their, you know, it's, 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 all, it's, it's one thing to sort of say, well, I'm very open-minded, but um, there's a strong, I think there's a strong sort of sense-making um, injunction in all of us uh, and uh, I think it's important too to acknowledge that there are there are subjects who are just very very challenging to work with because we don't want to you know we don't want to and Micah I'm, I'm wondering if you have something like uh, on this it's hard to sit with that negative capacity there's a there's a sort of make sense order that takes place within ourselves too you know the ego wants to be coherent with itself mm -hmm. you want to know what you know you want to act on what makes sense mm -hmm. right yeah, well, I mean, this is this is one of the reasons that I'm so fascinated by group work is um, I I see 
a lot of potential and group work to hold a lot that it would be very difficult to hold on your own. Uh, and, you know, maybe to be more concrete than that, um, you know, I've, I've been in group settings, like group therapy settings or whatever, where, where people are uh, uh, screaming at each other, screaming at each other. Uh, and I'm just about 100% certain that if the same two people who are screaming at each other had been just kind of on, them, on their own, just the two of them, this conflict would not have happened. Uh, early, it wouldn't. It wouldn't have happened in the way that it did. This this massive kind of surge of of affect. Uh, and the reason that this was able to happen, which you know, some people really didn't like this uh, happening, but in some ways, I think it was um, appropriate. It was it was real. It was honest. Uh, and I think the reason that it was able to happen is because of the the undergirding of the group and the communal structure that was in place, it was able to hold both people and the kind of intense affect going on in the situation. Uh, I think there are supreme limits to what any one person can hold. I think I'm, I'm you know, I'll, I'll uh, be uh, uh, self-aggrandizing and say, I think I'm, I'm pretty good at holding a lot uh, therapeutically and whatnot, but I think Alex probably is too. I think you probably are too, Gary, uh, our clinicians here. Um, but I think that there are limits to what individual therapy can do personally. And I'm sure Alex will have uh, things to say here. <laughs> well, Micah, I just wanted to say, you know, having known you for a long time, I can say that I do feel like you have the capacity to hold a lot of a lot of chaos and a lot of disorder and not, you know, not be repulsed by it or scared of it. Um, I'd say that that's my favorite. Well, scared, scared, but keep going. I think I've sure. <laughs> sure. You know, and I wonder um, though, if you have felt and, and anyone, you know, who, who has clinical experience or, or really anything to say on this, um, there's a, there's a, there's a way in which you can never know enough about therapy that everything that you do is a doctrinaire move you know that everything that you do is sort of sanctified and known you're always taking a risk and i found that with my um perhaps psychotically structured clients and other you know individuals i've known um there is there's quite a feeling that you're taking a risk with a delicate person who about whom you really understand very little um and i don't know if i have much more to say about that, except that I, I'm, I'm hesitant. I think I'm agreeing with you hesitantly that it's um, Micah that it something is needed to 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 contain these people um, and to orient them. Um, they should not at all be romanticized or or made into like sort of revolutionary figures like PNG would have it or something like that. Like it's a it's a very difficult topic. Well, they, they don't do that, just to be clear. They don't They're do not, that? Okay. Except in their books. But. <laughs> that's, not, that's not what they mean when they talk about sort of uh, schizoanalytic processes. They're not valorizing the schizophrenic. Yeah. I mean, um, if, you, if you take a look at first-person accounts of... Uh, I think Alex is frozen, by the way. Sorry? Sorry? I think Alex is frozen. 
Is Alex frozen? Yeah. Oh boy. He really didn't like that DNG conversation. Yeah. <laughs> it went off the rails there. Yeah, I see it. I see a black screen there. Yeah. Um, I mean, we could continue talking and hope it resolves, but uh, I mean, Alex was mentioning some very, I think, important things for our podcast, which is he mentioned holding space, but he also mentioned, and, and the, the hearing ear is the thing that we keep seeming to come back to. I guess Alex is gone now, huh? Um, catch him up. Yeah. So there's the ear. He mentioned imagination, too, um, and holding space. All three of those things, um, I, I feel like we're, we're, we're kind of compelled to focus on as uh, humanistically oriented uh, theorists and uh, clinicians and your case is Gary and Micah. I wonder if we could fill the gap in there. We have to wait for Alex to, to like link those three things together because it seems like we kind of have to. Uh, any word from Alex, Micah? Or... No, but I'm texting him. Okay, uh, Suraj, do you want to re repeat what you were saying? Because we had a bit of a break there. I yeah, it's, I missed Alex there. So I, I wanted to bring some attention to his mentions of three things, which are uh, imagination and trying to understand the other, uh, developing the hearing ear or the interpretive ear uh, as we interact with other people and communicate with them. And there was one other thing there, but... Um, I think those things we need to kind of focus on as humanists uh, in this call and, and kind of figure out how we can link those together, ideally in a medical or a, um, clinical context, but maybe we have to be more basic with that if we can't reform that immediately. I would focus on, yeah, I would focus on the, um, the inherent risk that's involved with interpretation in this kind of context, actually. So going back to the two um, ethical injunctions, right, of, of the Hippocratic Oath, do no harm and do good. If you think about it, those don't really exist on a spectrum. Those are two different injunctions. At any given point in time, you're trying to do both at once. And that's how you're trying to optimize your, your decision-making process with the risks involved with doing no harm and doing good, right? Because um, in, in doing no harm, that basically means just sit back and, and, and don't do anything excessive. Because the more you do, the higher the likelihood that whatever you do might make th things go wrong. Whereas the other one, right, do good, that means um, maybe sometimes you have to act in order to make a difference and make an impact that will sway things more in a positive direction, a therapeutic direction. And it's never... I mean, it is kind of like a neurotic fantasy when we think that there's a set of rules or protocols that could be followed, an evidence-based sort of uh, practice that will take care of the uncertainty involved, right? Or entailed in the therapeutic process because you're always confronting the unknown and the other. And um, it also makes me think about what it, what's the function of prescribing someone a pill whom you're having a difficult time understanding fully and their experience as well. That's sort of, right. It can be seen as a way of putting a safe distance between yourself and the experience right. of suffering right. as a defensive sort of maneuver and not right. necessarily because sometimes 
uh, medicine is, is, is necessary to, to contain and to stabilize because one of the primary experiences, right, in psychosis is in instability or destabilization of sense of self, sense of world, sense of relation to others, and that can get extremely overwhelming and debilitating, and it could lead to all sorts of harm. Um, so I- well, say, Gary, let me, let me jump in there and just say one, one comment, uh, which is that I, I think you, actually, I think I said this in the first podcast, uh, but I, I'll say it a little bit differently, which is that I, I think you, you can't take people out of the psychic ecosystem, you know? So I think that, uh, and this gets to, I think maybe what Serge was saying or somebody was saying about how these things are situated culturally and understood culturally in different ways. Uh, so I, I think that this, this sort of idea that someone is destabilized in psychosis, which I, I think that's a pretty fair uh you know, interpretation, um, but that they they need some kind of stabilization through medication or psych, some sort of psychiatric service. Um, I, I, I think that contextually speaking within our own sort of ecosystem that can make sense, but I, but I would question kind of the frame itself, the structure itself, and wonder if maybe there isn't a better way to uh, frame these issues and also sort of organize ourselves socially in ways that are maybe more uh, helpful, healing. Does it make a difference if, um, I mean, I, I think I see what you're saying in terms of reframing or paraphrasing maybe even the terminology that we're using to talk about this. Um, the kind of destabilization that I'm talking about, I think it, it speaks to the the structure of the experience of psychosis itself. So it's yeah. thing that's experienced from their point of view. And so what's yeah. um, the, the injunction there isn't to alleviate the suffering that I experience from not knowing how to handle that form of destabilization, but the patient's own, right? Um, mm -hmm. Suffering and how they experience it. So um, one, one thing I would say is that I don't think personal experience can be divorced from cultural, economic and intersubjective processes. And yet that's the one thing that seems to be systematically bracketed out by psychiatry, or at least the attempt is there. Maybe to bracket it out or to squash it or to anxiously decide it doesn't exist in the more extreme cases. Um, but, but in general, there's the, you know, there's the disordered subject or person. Um, maybe subject is being a little bit too charitable. Um, in terms of what the psychiatrist is, uh, how they're viewing the patient. But um, yeah, that subjectivity, the personal experience needs to be confronted or reconciled somehow and situated properly within the economic, the social, and, and given its kind of like primacy and, and fundamentality. Yeah. Yeah. I, I want to just, so I, I think I'd better see now what you're saying, actually, that um, to say that schizophrenia is in the schizophrenic is to commit a category error of sorts because something like schizophrenia doesn't just exist within the individual. It's a symptom of what you might say they're <laughs> the ways in which they reciprocally relate with the world and with the social world and maybe the cultural world uh, more specifically, uh, which would mean then that the, the appropriate level of analysis at which the intervention must take place isn't just the individual. It has to be something more than just that. Um, this makes me think of, well, three people. 
uh, Gregory Bateson and his uh, discussions on the double bind actually and the double bind dynamic as it unfolds in the family unit or the fam family ecosystem, we might say. Um, to R.D. Lang's phenomenological studies on schizophrenia and, and, and psychotic experiences where uh, one of the things that was found to be pervasive and a core component of um, the developmental history of schizophrenics was invalidation. I, I, I think that was it, right? A sense of invalidation uh, from their caregivers and, and also a, a sense of what he called ontological insecurity. Uh, and the third, obviously Lacan, right? Um, how ultimately the, the issue with the psychotic isn't in them, but in their relationship with the cultural dimension. Um, do you have any thoughts on those three things or, or how they relate to your points on um, how psychosis or schizophrenia aren't in the person, but in the ecosystems in which they're actually embedded and, and in relationship with? Uh, I'm curious if Alex has anything because I feel like he hasn't talked in a bit. Um, I do, and I might get a bit that you do also. Um, it's interesting, yes, in, you know, the sort of in a nutshell take on, on psychosis and on is that uh, the, the, the mother's desire or what it is that the mother uh, needs from another person uh, fails to find a stable and consistent uh, referent. Um, and of course, in the you know, in the, in, the, in the term, the name of the father, it is it's certainly suggested that this person would be the father, though it need not be uh, a, a father who is, who is there. It, it need not be a man. It need not be a, the father of the child or anything like that. Um, so just to sort of, you know, just something perhaps for people to take with them as, as, we, as we advance into this discussion. Um, where, you know, where the cultural intersection of this or the, you know, the sort of 30,000 foot view of this, um, I don't know. I think that, I think that it's, it's difficult to, to make Lacan into a, a sociologist or a, you know, a, an ethnographer, um, even though a lot of people do. I think on this particular question, the most the farthest I'll venture is to suggest that um, under our current uh, economic and, and social organization, there is a uh, feeling that the other person is no longer needed. Uh, that is, there is no longer uh, a sort of, you know, uh, another, another who you must, you, your satisfaction passes through another person. You have to address uh, someone or an institution or a, a notion in order to get your satisfaction, as we all know, you just buy your satisfaction, right? Um, there's a lot more that could be said about that, but I think the 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 weakening of the need to to um, to in a in a complex way um, sort of address your desire to a to a system of ideas and. Uh, a, uh, a, a system that gives both constraint and structure and, and meaning to that desire is falling away. Um, but again, you know, I'm, I'm just 
I'm skeptical of a, a sort of sociological view because there are, you know, probably not very many psychotic people by comparison to the many, you know, millions and billions of neurotic people out there. Um, some Lacanians would suggest differently or would suggest that psychosis is, is looking different. Um, yeah, that's what I got for now. Micah, what do you feel? I, I'm not sure if you had said that you had something there too or. No, I was just checking in with you. Anybody else has anything? It seems like uh, going back to the question of uh, psychosis and culture, I'm reminded of a uh, spiritual, some, some spiritual uh, content that I've read before, but also kind of more of a cliche, which actually I think kind of could come in and save the day here is um, at least as a starting point, a recognition that a sick person, if they really are sick, to say, okay, possibly anybody is sick in some way. Um, that's symptomatic of the culture that they're from or in. And if you take that further in the spiritual direction, you say that if one person is sick, then everyone's sick in a sense. The system, the ecosystem is sick. And so, you know, it's, it, it, it's, it's tempting in an individualistic context to say that, yeah, the, uh, the psychosis is in the person, it's in their brain, whatever. But I think if you are interested in enlarging that, then it seems to be that we have to recognize that psychosis exists on a plane, an interpersonal cultural plane, that if one person's going through something, well, that sucks and I feel it too. And I, at least at the least, I feel some empathy for that person. And maybe I've even been through what they're going through. Or I know somebody else who has. So it seems like there needs to be a an affirmation of that inherent, um, what what uh what feel what Guattari would call the socius or just the social yeah, so and can uh I, mm -hmm. can go I ahead a, can i pull a classic micah move and uh read a james homan quote real quick of course uh, he says my practice tells me i can no longer distinguish clearly between neurosis of self and neurosis of world psychopathology of self and psychopathology of world Moreover, it tells me that to place neurosis and psychopathology solely in personal reality is a delusional repression of what is actually realistically being experienced. And then he says, uh, and I'm, I mean, I'm, you know, it, this is complicated, but I'll get into it in a second. Psychoanalysis has to get out of the consulting room and analyze all kinds of things. You have to see that the buildings are anorexic. You have to see that the language is schizogenic, that normalcy is manic, and medicine and business are paranoid. Uh, and I, I know Alex has been kind of talking about this, and, you know, the difficulty of making Lacan and maybe psychoanalysis in general into a kind of sociological project. Uh, and, I, and I do think that, the, you know, the, even though I read this because I agree with it, uh, I do think that there's, it's certainly not saying like, don't, don't treat people you know, like don't treat individual people. Uh, I certainly think that there's room for that. Yeah, and to, and to sort of, you know, connect with what you said, Micah, like, don't get me wrong, in my, in my ideal world, like, uh, there would be a sort of psychoanalytic worldview, even though my, many, many people might not like that, but there would be a psychoanalytic worldview that saw, for instance, buildings as anorexic and uh, businesses as paranoid and, and so on and so forth. The um, well, I guess, um, 
I, yeah, I guess I, I agree with you. I agree with you more than I than I disagree with you. Maybe we could just extend this more in the phenomenological direction then, because that's what I was hearing there. And I know that Hillman, um, you know, he, he was a neo-Union and then uh, Romanitian Hillman and then fused him with Merleau-Ponty in different ways. So there is like a natural trajectory that, where Hillman could be taken right towards the phenomenological. And Hillman was phenomenological too. He'd read all, he'd read all those folks. Oh, really? Okay. Well, that's, that's great. Um, I didn't know that. Um, so, you know, if you're a psychoanalyst, you might say that if you want to know what someone thinks, right, and we, we've sort of heard Jordan Peterson popularize this, uh, this way of thinking about it, that if you want to know what someone thinks, don't listen to what they say, look at how they act, um, which is fair enough, okay, because a lot of what we do is unconscious, a lot of what we think is unconscious, and we, we act out that which we do not put into words, right, into language. Um, now you can sort of, there, there's a similar logic to phenomenology as well, which goes something like this, which is that if you wanna know who someone is, don't look inside them, look at their world. The way in which they experience the world is gonna be, re be reflective of who they are, the structures of their experience and the structures of their self. And therefore the structure of their, their, their manners, right? Of relating with the world. So. Um, that's just one thought to maybe like ponder. Um, well, it's funny because so much of this got figured out with Heidegger, you know, uh, so much of this got figured out of like being in the world, like you, the, the subject and object can't be divided. Like it, it's, it's funny sometimes, I mean, you know, granted people have their reasons for not wanting to read Heidegger or not wanting to take Heidegger seriously, such as him being a Nazi sympathizer. Um, but it is kind of funny sometimes when I think about like the fact that a lot of these sort of conceptual issues were solved back in his time and probably Husserl too. It was, yeah. Um, yeah, Husserl, I, yeah. In terms of the transcendent, the, uh, the transjective for Verveke, but the, uh, is that the epike, the subjective and the objective phenomenology? Or the point of phenomenology is to bridge the objective and the subjective. That's from Husserl. Um, yeah, Husserl was... Um, it's weird. I, I'm not too clear on the history, but I recently read uh, Husserl's posthumous right, work, uh, The Crisis of European Sciences, which took place after the rupture between Husserl and Heidegger took place. But Husserl is, um, in some sense, he's more radical than Heidegger himself in talking about all this stuff. And he, he's doing something that, anyway, this might lead us a little bit astray because I wanted to tie this back to psychosis, actually. Because um, what you're talking about is a way of being the unconscious in the world itself. And um, right, the buildings are schizophrenic, the businesses are, and medicine is manic or whatever, right? That's a, a way of humanizing or personifying or anthrop anthropomorphizing the world itself. Or maybe bringing what's already there to the fore from the background, which is what the sort of natural science. Of, of looking at the psyche sort of does it, it conceals the the humanness of it and the the, the dirty sort of raw um full right um like liveliness of it and the unpredictability and the disorder that's already always there um but with with lacan and this is what i meant by 
I, I see this sort of from a Lacanian lens being a cultural issue in that if you think about, so, so I want to propose a, a little argument to you guys, and then um, maybe we'll spend like five, 10 minutes afterwards, just wrapping up, bringing it all together. This comes straight out of cognitive science, and I, I've tried to sort of extend it a little bit to, to, to apply to culture, all right? And I'm curious what you might think about this. The idea is that the fundamental problem that cognitive agency confronts is that of uncertainty. The world is incomprehensibly complex, and you have finite resources that you're given to deal with that complexity. And that complexity is virtually infinite, right? Or at the very least, it's indefinitely large. Uh, now, how are you going to cope with something indefinitely large with such finite means? Well, the solution to that problem is uh, accomplished through means of framing. You put a frame around the, what you consider to be relevant so that you ignore the vast majority of what's out there and consider only a little bit. Now, the, the problem with frames is that although they're simultaneously the solution to the problem of right, infinity, they all, they're also finite, which means that they eventually and inevitably break down because the world changes, it's entropic, but the frames themselves are static. So when the world, it, when the world's complexity exceeds the grasp of your frames, your frames are no longer sufficient for coping with the complexity and they break down and now you're flooded with uncertainty. And the way that's experienced psychologically is through anxiety and, and, and fear, but not only. Now, here's the thing, all right? That if we need to frame things sufficiently in order to stave off the uncertainty that's there and to make things copable, right? And that, that's a way of reducing anxiety by way of reducing uncertainty then given the fact that human beings inhabit a predominantly social world, then the kind of uncertainty that we're predominantly trying to contain through our frames is social uncertainty. So that when, right, in the social context, when we fail to contain social uncertainty sufficiently with whatever frames we have, we experience social anxiety. And that shows up in the form of what the hell should I say? What the hell did that person mean? Oh my God, am I coming off wrong? What do they think of me? Was that the right joke? What if they, they, they don't like me? What if they reject me or leave me, right? And if you think about the kinds of first person accounts that psychotic experiences sort of right, generate, it's usually around um, a kind of irreducible incomprehensibility around the social and around others and the other. And there, there, there's something I think to be said about, there, I don't know, this is very speculative. I, I, I haven't worked it out and I, I don't know who really has, but I think that Lacan has a lot to say about this, that at, at some point there's something that happens in the uh, enculturation process as you're developing where, right? The function of culture, which is to provide you with ready-made frames to stave off all that social uncertainty, there's a disturbance there at a fundamental level. So culture is no longer doing its job at the level of individual cognition. And th th there, there's a disorganization at the level of cultural cognition taking place, which perhaps manifests in the form of persecutory um, experiences with the other, invasive feelings, uh, hallucinations of voice hearing, um, bodily, right, and, and, and worldly 
uh, disturbances, right? Like thoughts are being inserted into here from out there by someone else, for example. So you, which is true. <laughs> yeah, that, that's a real thing. That's, that's, a, that's what the media and everything else does. Yeah. Well, that's what culture does. Yeah. Well, culture media for me. One, not separable one, one thing i would say gary um is that i, I would want to see some sort of self-reflexivity on this where like cognitive science is itself a frame uh in, an, in a heideggerian sense it it shows certain things and then it sort of hides certain things um so that's just one you know it doesn't doesn't negate a lot of what you're saying because i think there's a lot of truth in what you're saying but I, but i would want to because I'm not a cognitive science person and it feels a little too technocratic for me sometimes, uh, maybe even a little bourgeois, but that's probably all psychology and psychiatry. So, yeah. um, but, but I would just throw that in there, you know, but I, but I still think there's a lot of value in this kind of idea of um, understanding something like psychosis at a, as a worlded phenomenon for sure. And, and as something that, you know, because this this is really systems thinking, right? We're we're getting into systems thinking where like a person is a node in a network, you know, and and something in the network, something in the relations that form this node, uh, got twisted up, you know, and 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 it it produces something that is discrete. It's not like the person dissolves into culture or into their relationships. There is a discrete entity here that's a node in a network. Um, but yeah, I, I, I do think it's really important to, to acknowledge the network. Yeah. I wonder, guys, are we talking about um, a culture that would sort of minimize or, or, or prevent the occurrence of, uh, of, of uh, psychotic subjects? Is that what we're talking about here? Or are we talking about one that, one that holds, them, holds them better? Yeah, holds them better. Yeah, and and recognizes them in the first place, and then before before like a hasty prescription, you know, before any any kind of uh, life changing judgment is made, the person has to ideally be understood on their own terms. It's just figuring out what their terms are is, I guess, the challenge. One of the challenges that we're circling around. Yeah. yeah well, and the and the reason I ask about that is because I do think that the more prevalent, let us say, the, um, the psychoanalytic sensibility becomes, um, the more difficult it might be to, you know, there's a sort of, um, who talks about uh, that, you know, that they opened the mummy after 4,000 years and they undid, you know, the, whoever it was who did this, I think it's Volgiard talks about this, that the, the magic of that mummy was undone for the sake of, of a science that completely paled by comparison. Um, the broader and and deeper our the more prevalent our psychoanalytic you know, the psychoanalytic understanding becomes i think the more difficult it would be for us to accept um sort of uh psychosis proof if you will societies um because okay. something you know something to create a strong neurotic subject you may need kind of a strong neurotic society um if that makes sense right right can I, can I can I say something real quick, uh, Alex? Yeah. It, so I mean, there, there. I, I would suspect that something that looks like schizophrenia exists in every culture and always has. I would mm -hmm. suspect that that's the case. Um, although we they they probably didn't understand it as 
we understand it as schizophrenia, which is, you know, a frame issue, a uh, hermeneutic issue. Um, but we do know for certain that, for example, in countries that are not first world today, like in developing countries, uh, it's actually, there, there's a, a higher percentage of sort of recovery from psychosis. Like the, the outcomes are better. Yes, absolutely. The outcomes are better. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and I talked about this last time I was on the podcast, there are cultures where people hear voices, but it's not a negative experience. Yeah, not demonized. Yeah, and the, the voices are not persecutory, they're not um, violent or hostile. Yeah. So just to just to say that, you know, it, it's I, I think that I don't I don't you probably can't have a, a psychosis less society. I don't think you would want to. I think that would be a bad thing, actually. Uh, but but absolutely, like um, a totally different orientation to it, a, a totally different communal holding and understanding, hermeneutic around it, I think is really important. Uh, not to not to um, monopolize, but the reason that I ask this is because there's there's always seems to be implicit the question here of whether we are simply trying to learn how to better cope with the sort of the subjects who have been cast, you know, uh, in the sense of making a mold and, and casting something, the subjects who have been cast in this society, or are we imagining uh, a society where this sort of suffering would not come into being, or are we imagining a place where this would not be understood as suffering? And I think that's, you know, where I, where I get um, a little hesitant to, to make Lacan into a sociologist is that I think, um, a, a, a society that is sort of ideal for human functioning um, is I uh, I just I wonder if that is sort of beyond the how to put this how to put this hey, there are, there are there are um, concepts uh, Maslow talked about a concept called eupsychia which I didn't know until much later in my encounter of, of Maslow but. Basically, he defines eupsychia as a psychological utopia, as a, as a, the, the psychologically healthy culture and society. Mm-hmm. He kind of waffles between culture and society, but if you put his writings together, both of those come out. So it, it would kind of be like, I guess, first, do we want that? And second, if we do, then how to get there, right? But, but we, need to, we need to know what it looks like, and we need to know, like, we need to parse through the relativity of the suffering, like you're saying. Alex and Alex, I'm curious what you would think about the Tom Waits lyric. Uh, Bad writing is destroying the quality of our suffering. Mm. I, <laughs> that's yeah, interesting. Uh, like usual, Tom Waits profundity. Yeah, that's that's excellent. Well, I, I'm wondering if that's kind of getting maybe at what you're trying to get at, which is you know you don't want to give away suffering. You don't want to mm. you know brave new world this shit essentially. Yeah, and that's that's the thing. I mean, I think the human being in any context, the human being will find will find its its essential suffering. Like you will, the the death drive will express itself anywhere. The drives by nature will always be ex- excessive. Um, it's it almost it sometimes seems to me like we had, we need to have like a you know a very sort of forthright psychoanalysis and very deep and rich understanding of psychoanalysis, and then we have to have like a very boring you know, a very boring culture um, for the sake of, for the, for the sake of subjects, you know, like the, the, the sort of ultimately 
you know, the, the, the fungible culture where a lot of things are possible seems also to be very difficult for human beings. Which kind of gets back at Gary's issues. Like, you know, we, we certainly live in a time where there's more information, more chaos, more complexity than probably, you know, human beings ever. Yeah, and we were aware of at least before, or perhaps that we created or contributed to ourselves. There's competing discourses, competing, you know, everything. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Go ahead, Alex. I was just going to say this is, I mean, this is really, you know, you may have noticed I'm, I'm sort of, I'm a little stumped, but this is a really fascinating topic that I thought, you know, I, I thought I had uh, more answers to this than I do. Uh, unfortunately, I'm not going to be able to direct the course of events for human beings on this planet. I thought that maybe I could do that, but um, <laughs> but there is there is a sense that like I just don't I just don't know if psychoanalysis can can get ahead of can get ahead of things. Like if psychoanalysis perhaps always has to be sort of in response. <laughs> it's like if we take the unconscious seriously, like the unconscious is always there. You can't just create like a padded room for the human subject. Like we'll still find a way to destroy ourselves. We'll still find our <laughs> you know, like yeah. And so it's 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 odd to try to meld these things. Though I am finding it interesting and stimulating to try to do so. I wonder, I mean, I wonder what people think about about that, if anything. I mean, that is kind of Deleuze and Guattari's critique of psychoanalysis a little bit. Is like we need a constructive project rather than just a sort of deconstructive project. Um, but but I also realize that Gary wants to say something and we probably need to wrap up. That's what I was going to say. I think this is a perfect note to wrap up on because we've been talking about cultivating the virtue of tolerating the position of not knowing, right? And that's exactly where we're finding ourselves right now. Not quite knowing what the future of this should look like or maybe how it will look like. Um, Despite everything that we have talked about and all the territory that we have tried to explore together today, which I think as, as, comprehensive and deep as it actually is and interesting it's only the tip of the iceberg so um i hope we'll be back to to talk some more about this i had a lot of fun today guys so i just want to thank you both um we all want to thank you both so um because in the past we've had this tradition of asking our speakers uh what they would say to their younger selves if they had the opportunity to do so um and today we have two of you and the both of you are friends actually. Um, I wanna sort of put a spin on that and ask you to do something similar, but ask each other if you could meet your former selves, right? Your younger selves, what would you say to one another? I'm curious. Mm-hmm. Would they be friends? <laughs> would they hate each other's guts? I think we would have been friends as young, I think so too. young adults. I, so yeah. I got to think about this for a second. Yeah, like think about the person you know today and then think, God, if this guy just did something yeah. different, he would be more like me, you know? Yeah. Well, you know, what comes to mind, you know, if I had, if I had known you when we were both children, I would not have had anything of value to impart to you, um, except maybe, you know, some Nintendo 64 information. But hell yeah, sounds good. If I met you now, you know, if you came into my consulting room now, um, I would I would lovingly say to your former self, knowing you that you are 
very, very capable and that uh, people, people know that more, more than you might think. People really, people know that. You are thought of in that way. You are regarded in that way. And that if you, if you, if you seize that, it, it opens up a lot of things. That feels more like to me than my younger self. Well, I, mean, I, I can imagine your younger self too. I mean, You've got a good, healthy inner child. That's what that means. Yeah, as per you're, your, you're in touch with it. As no, 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 no I, 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 I appreciate that. Uh, and I, I, I know what you mean. And I kind of I have a, a sense of what you mean. Um, I think if I was, was going to talk to your um younger self i i don't know exactly how to frame this but i think i would want to say something about how like you and this is probably more to you than it is to your son, younger self you know in this in a similar fashion but i think i would i would want to say something about how like you don't have to become the opposite of what you hate mm. Mm. Well, I, I as, as as far as as we know one another, I, I accept that. I, I accept and receive that. And uh, you know, I'm talking to my analyst tomorrow, so I'll see if I can be, <laughs> have a whole new thing to talk about. Yeah. What I hate instead, or something. Guys, uh, you know, let me, let me just clarify just briefly in the, <laughs> in the sense of like there is there is a, a middle a middle between you know. Um, Lo loathsomeness and godhood <laughs> yes yes more more content for the analysts tomorrow i think <laughs> i take i receive that i receive that micah thank you guys i i want to uh thank you both for that wonderful um surprise because i mean we we've never done this before with that we haven't had the opportunity to do this with any of our speakers so you guys just sort of set the precedent um and uh this is sort of where when all the magic sort of happens um, in our in our interviews at the very end when we get personal in this way. So I, I just want to thank you for sharing those um, those thoughts with each other uh, with us present. Um, hopefully the group itself act act as a sort of container and in, in Mike is a way of thinking about it as a um, yeah as a container for for the kind of experience that you just had. Um, I think this is a great note to wrap up on and um what i will do because we reference several lacanian concepts is uh include a link to Derek hook's um youtube channel where he deconstructs all these things just for any viewers that are interested especially in psychosis and the the name of the father especially and whatnot and i'll also include a link to um some of micah's work and alex if there's anything to share but we'll talk about that right after uh i click pause uh stop so uh thanks again to everyone and we will be back at some point so stay tuned thank you guys thank you both yep. yeah great to be here once again <laughs>